Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid, what happens when the kids have left the nest, including you, and neither the wife nor husband is working? Nothing to worry about, nothing to schedule, and they look out and say, who the hell are you? Jill Graskowitz, who runs the Senior Center, talks to us about gray divorce. Now let's talk about something that is even more disruptive, solar flares. And it has applications directly to communications, to reliability in communications, because solar flares affects our communications. Such as if a flare erupted on the sun right now and you were listening to me via satellite and, yep, dead air. A local university is doing something about it. Then during a stroll to the coffee room, we detour to the parking lot and... Anyway, if you see any other cars or stuff coming uh, coming this way, uh, let me know because I think they're coming to take me away. Fortunately, that was recorded yesterday because he was taken away. And we have a new segment on OK Boomer hosted by Kendall Boyson, who asks a question, are you being a little bit too negative? Kendall will have the answer in a few minutes. And now the news. Boomer News. This is Robert Rickman. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a new House bill recently to establish a new program that will benefit food banks and local farmers. On August 3rd, Governor Pritzker established a Illinois Farm Food Bank program through signing the bill to expand resources for food bank systems across the state while supporting local farmers. According to a release from Pritzker, the bill creates mechanisms for acquiring and distributing fresh fruits, vegetables, meat and poultry, dairy and eggs to organizations providing free food to those in need. The program began with a pilot in 2021 with grant funding from USDA and is made permanent through this bill. Now we have some Medicare news, three stories. One starts out in New York. A Manhattan Supreme Court judge has issued a ruling permanently prohibiting New York City from switching its 250,000 retired employees and their elderly or disabled dependents to a privatized Medicare Advantage plan managed by Aetna. Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Lyle Frank sided with city retirees, finding merit to their argument that the planned switchover violated long-standing guarantees by the city that every active and retired city worker is entitled to city-funded health care through a combination of Medicare and other supplemental insurance. In his decision, Frank ordered the city permanently enjoined from requiring any city retirees and their dependents from being removed from their current health insurance plans and from being required to either enroll in Aetna Medicare Advantage plan or seek their own health coverage. Frank granted the retirees' petition to stop the switch for the reasons he outlined in a July 6th ruling granting a preliminary injunction. In that decision, Frank wrote that the retirees have shown that numerous promises were made by the city, uh, then New York City employees, and future retirees that would receive a Medicare supplemental plan when they retired, and that their first level of coverage once they retired would be Medicare. And this from MarketWatch. The campaign to privatize Medicare has just passed a landmark. This year, for the first time ever, more than half of all Medicare beneficiaries are enrolled through private insurers in a system known as Medicare Advantage. 
The Kaiser Family Foundation reports that in 2023, 30.8 million people are enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan, accounting for more than half or 51 percent of the eligible Medicare population and $454 billion or 54 percent of total federal Medicare spending. As recently as 2005, privatized Medicare plans accounted for just 13% of beneficiaries. By 2033, they are expected to be about 60%. According to MarketWatch, this is a remarkable evolution. Medicare was created as a government program, but today, more than half of its beneficiaries are in the hands of private insurers rather than the government. Private Medicare plans have existed since the 1970s, but only really took off in recent decades. A big change came under President Obama. Uh, His Affordable Care Act, which became known as Obamacare, improved the system, drove down costs, and introduced incentives for insurers to make their plans better, including a star rating and annual bonuses for hitting quality targets. Kaiser reports that those bonuses are on track to jump 30% this year to $12.8 billion, more than four times the amount paid out by Uncle Sam in 2015. This is just over 1% of the annual Medicare budget, which will top $1 trillion this year. Now, this budget is greater than those enrolling in traditional Medicare. Advantage enrollees are twice as likely to be people of color and, on average, earn less, have lower wealth, and are less likely to live in affluent neighborhoods. Is Medicare Advantage offering its customers better health outcomes at lower costs? Time will tell. Now, if you've received a letter lately from Medicare, I can understand you being um, suspicious. Check out the letter carefully. Make sure it says .gov at the end, you know, on the address, uh, return address. Uh, The reason why you might have gotten a letter is there is a data breach that occurred in May involving a contractor that works for Medicare. A Russian ransomware group is reportedly claiming responsibility for the breach. People are now getting letters telling them about this breach and what options are available to them. And it's frightening. The personal information of 612,000 Medicare beneficiaries was involved. It included names, social security numbers, birth dates, and insurance information. This data breach took place at the network of a government contractor, Maximus Federal Services. Maximus assists in the Medicare appeals process. Letters are being sent to people who are potentially affected. Those people have been offered two years of free identity and credit monitoring services. In many cases like this, victims only get one year of monitoring. The letter also contains information on getting a free credit report. Now, if you are affected like I was, take advantage of that and carefully review the details of the letter if you got it. I got the letter, and I qualified for at least one year of that uh, service, and uh, I'm getting a free credit report. Other news. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, on April 8, 2024, a part of small-town America will go dark at 2.01 in the afternoon. That's because a region called Southern Illinois is along the path of a total eclipse. Accordingly, researchers at Southern Illinois University Carbondale will equip, coordinate, and train teams of student eclipse observers across North America, playing a vital role in NASA's plans to study the rare celestial event in April. Meanwhile, these researchers will be squinting through their telescopes at solar flares, which can be very disruptive to us on Earth. The team of SIU researchers is led by co-principal investigators Pat Penn and Bob Baer. 
The daily solar observations are to determine more about those flares and it has applications directly to communications, to reliability in communications because solar flares affects our communications as well as the power grid, computers, things like that. Uh, I was working at a radio station about 30 years ago and they went to satellite and I got a call about 30 seconds before it happened. Robert, um, we're having a solar flare and the satellite's going to go off and, I, uh, and then it went off the air. So um, I guess they predicted it, it happened, and he, we didn't have enough time to react. Now, I would assume I would have had enough time to react. Yeah, I, so I'm not an expert on the prediction times now, but that's what it is about. It's about being able to predict them. Our daily solar observations see what happens on the surface, and it sees what happens when that flare just starts to happen and right before that flare happens. So mm -hmm. we can use that as a predictor. And OK Boomer will be following Bob Bear and his team up to and including the eclipse. Now, according to census data, 38 million adults are living alone in the United States, where the share of single-person households has reached a record high. Experts say the older American population is likely to climb dramatically in the coming decades. Nearly 16 million people aged 65 and older in the U.S. lived solo in 2022, three times as many who lived alone in that age group in the 1960s. And as baby boomers age, that number is expected to grow even more, raising big questions about the country's future. Now, there are many reasons behind this shift in our society, including the economic gains women made when they entered the workforce and changing attitudes towards marriage. One factor fueling the rising number of seniors in solo households caught experts by surprise when they stumbled upon the trend, a rise in divorce rates among adults over 50. Jill Graskowitz is the director of a senior citizen center and former administrator of a nursing home. I asked Jill, based on your experience running a senior citizen center and uh, working in nursing homes, what do you think the reason is? Why is it increasing? Well, you know, the old song, love and marriage, love and marriage. Um, sometimes it does not to go together like a horse and carriage. That horse and carriage breaks up. The horse gets older, the carriage gets rickety. They separate. The carriage is sitting out in the field. The horse is aging in the stall. And when you put them together again, it's like, wait a second, how do I put this carriage back on me? So the statistics are that 50% of people are going to get divorced. But what part of those 50% of people are actually gray or silver divorces, those who are in their upper years, 55, 60 and above. I think the numbers would actually uh, surprise you. They're staggering. And the reason is, is because people are being less conservative. Uh, the morals have gotten a little bit more loose compared to what great grandma and grandpa did. And we're finding that life is very short and we want to go out and have fun. And if if my husband or wife doesn't want to do that, then okay, well, adios, amigos. I'm out. But it's increasing. Why do you think it's increasing? Is it because 
there are more baby boomers than the previous generation, or is there something else? I feel like a lot of the times families stay together for the kids. That happened in my case. My parents were married for over 30 years. After my sister got out of college or uh, uh, school, um, threw in the towel, they said that's it, they went their separate ways, and now they're both happy as larks. When baby boomers especially were younger and in high school, you guys were very caught up in the fact that um, you're going to marry your high school sweetheart. And I hear about high school sweethearts and I'm thinking, man, which sweetheart are we talking about for me in high school? Because I had several. I wouldn't marry any one of those guys. Nice fellas, but not marriage material. I wanted to go out and sow my oats. I wanted to have experiences in the world. And I think that's one thing that baby boomers lack. They lack those experiences because they did get married at such a young age, right out of high school. They didn't get their time to spread their wings and and see what the world has to offer. And they've spent 30 years plus. um, And it doesn't matter if your uh, demographic is um, male or female, uh, poor or rich. This is an internal drive to find happiness. And I think that people just want to go out and explore more things. And one day after the children leave the home, mom and dad look at each other and there's no sports games to go to, no parent-teacher conferences to go to, nothing to worry about, nothing to schedule. And they look out and say, who the hell are you? I didn't know you started doing that. And and then, you know, he, the husband looks at the wife and says, well, who have I been living with? So what do you do? Do you sit and do you try to fix it? Because people are set in their ways. If I'm 60 years old, I mean, I'm in my you know, early to mid forties and I'm already set in my ways. I like things how I like them and no one is going to tell me any different. I work hard and I deserve that. And I think the mentality of people these days is the same. You work hard, you deserve it. I want to have it. And so they go for it. Am I going to stay here and be miserable? Or am I going to say, the world is my oyster? Let's go see what's out there. Are you coming with me or are you staying behind? That's Jill Graskowitz, former nursing home administrator and current director of Club 60, the Marion, Illinois Senior Center. And this part of Illinois is a region north of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers as they come together. And we'll hear more from Jill in further programs. Okay, Boomer. Oh, well, that's Patrick. He's in charge of the Carbondale, Illinois Senior Center, and he's a Boomer, too. Hey, how are you receiving this program? If you're a Boomer, you're likely to be hearing it on your car radio, but not for long. Dick Taylor, a former media professor and commercial broadcaster, tells us about a trend in radio that might mean no radio in the future as we know it. Think slide projector versus Microsoft PowerPoint. 
Well, let's look at what happened. First of all, if you take a look at car manufacturers, they do lists of what their customers want. And I've looked at lots of these lists, but let me tell you what car, new car buyers want in their next new car. Number one, a proximity key. You know what that is? That's a key fob that can sit in your pocket. And as you walk to the car, the doors unlock. As you sit in the car, you hit the start button and boom, it starts. You never take a key out. It's called a proximity key. Wow. Apple CarPlay and Android Audio. They want USB outlets. They want blind spot monitoring and rear cross traffic alert systems. They want adaptive cruise control. They want a surround sound or surround view camera. I don't know how that works, but somehow it shows you everything around your automobile. They want wireless smartphone charging. They want rain sensing windshield wipers, automatic high beams, heated ventilated seats, and a heated steering wheel. Nowhere on the list do they want a radio, let alone an AM radio. And it gets worse. So what are the features they would not mind not having in their next new car? Navigation. And you say, wait a minute. Navigation? Well, I rented a car from Enterprise Intercar uh, about a year ago. And one of the things that says, what do you want on this car you're renting? And I checked off navigation. When I got to the rental booth in Montana, the gentleman said, he says, I see it checked off uh, navigation. We don't do that anymore. Most people just use their cell phone. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And so I did. <laughs> well, that's then what I do. Thing- I use my cell phone. Now, I've talked to some kids at Southern Illinois University. I'm taught, saying kids 18 years old, 20 years sure. old. I ask them, do you listen to the radio in the car? One person said, no, unless my Bluetooth fails. Another one <laughs> yeah. uses Bluetooth. They to them, radio is Bluetooth because you turn it on. Um, so the broadcast type radio, I don't think younger people are using at all. No, but here's the here's a key point. So of the things they don't want, they don't want navigation. They don't want a premium audio system. I found that amazing. They want they don't want an onboard Wi-Fi hotspot. Don't care about that stuff. Now, what's interesting is that they call it radio. When I was teaching uh, the radio courses at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, I would ask every year in each semester, what's the most important device that you own? Is it your radio? Is it your phone? Is it your laptop? Is it a iPad? What What is the most important? That what, what is the one thing you could not do without? And what I found out is nobody had a radio and nobody needed one. Didn't mean they didn't listen to radio. They just didn't listen to it on what we would call an AM FM radio receiver. They would listen to it on their phone or on their computer. And oftentimes they listened to a station that mom and dad used to have playing in the car when they took them to school. And so they were familiar with the air personalities and they thought it was a way of keeping in touch with home. So I'm out last weekend with a 15 year old granddaughter. I have 17 grandkids and one great grandchild. I was out with my uh, 15 year old granddaughter And we went to a restaurant, a diner that still had the jukebox terminals at Mm -hmm. the booze. And she had a stack of quarters with her. And she started putting quarters in the the machine and playing songs and singing along. What was she playing? 15 years old, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. I Want to Dance With You by Whitney Houston. American Pie by Don McLean. And and I thought to myself, I said, wait a minute. Wow. Do you have a radio in your room? She said, no. I said, do your parents have a radio in the house? And she thought for a moment and kind of scrunched up her nose. And she said, I don't think so. I said, where do you hear this stuff? And she said, well, on Spotify. 
Mm-hmm. And Spotify recommends songs I might like based on songs I enjoy listening to. Yeah. And so in the old days, that's it was the future. top 40. It was top 40. That's the future. That's it, it. Right. That's the future. In the old days, it was top 40 where uh, record stores would submit to, say, WLS or WCFL their hit records, and then they play that on the air. Now it's up to the individual to determine what they want to hear, and they they are their own program director, aren't they? They are. And and with Spotify now, they can even have their own DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. plays the records for us, for them and tells them what they're playing. It, it, that's pretty amazing. And and this whole new thing about artificial intelligence DJs replacing live DJs, uh, maybe it goes back to something that Marshall McLuhan said, the medium's the message. Yep. I think when we listen to an AM or FM radio station, we want we expect a certain kind of style of doing it. But when we call up a smart speaker and say, Hey, Alexa do X, Y, and Z, we don't care whether she's live or, or, or artificial. It's a different medium, a different medium. And sometimes if you sneeze and Alexa's on, it'll say it's four o'clock. We'll hear more from Dick Taylor in future episodes of OK Boomer to read Dick's blog. Check out, the Dick Taylor blog. That's all one small cased word, the Dick Taylor blog.com. Now, I must admit that I am at times a negative thinker. I was told recently that I expect the worst results from everything. Now, that's, I have long COVID, so that's an excuse. Uh, but I'm not the only one. There are several people like a name who share the same characteristics, and they are good. Uh, no, I won't mention them. Let's change the subject to turn to optimism, encouragement, encouragementology. Kendall Boyson is going to greet us now with a question. Hi, Robert. Today we're asking the question, why is the bad stuff easier to remember? You could be having a stellar day, everything is going right, one to write down and remember forever, and then you hit a snag. A challenge that might take a little effort and derails you for a moment, but the shift is immediate. This day stinks. You'll never guess what happened to me today. The negative event becomes the marquee of your day, and the traumatic event becomes the marquee of your memories. We revisit it often, protect it fiercely, and even reform it, chiseling away some of the details until it becomes our identity. But what happened to all the good? Where are the mental videos of all the celebrations, high fives, and proud moments? It's time to remove the topsoil of shame and let the light shine in on our accomplishments. I mean, who doesn't love a good breakup song or a sappy tearjerker film? Have you ever heard the phrase, I needed a good cry? Sadness can be comforting, and in times of need, we look for validation in songs, books, TV shows, and the people who bring the tissue to the pity parties we constantly throw. Just as there is a time and a place for everything, the time is for healing, and it's now. If you're stuck behind that warm blanket of regret and can't figure out how to move forward, stay tuned. It's time we make room for a healthy balance of misery and merrymaking. Sometimes the only way to get over it is to let it go. Memories are in the past, and even though some of them made a significant mark on our lives, we can't go back in history and rewrite them. What we can do is move forward, with 
or without them. That's your choice. You've heard people say, I can forgive, but I will never forget. One is great, forgiveness. But vowing to never forget could mean trouble for you and your future. How about learning something from it? Your own mistakes are easy lessons, but what about the bad stuff that comes by the way of other people? You can learn more about yourself. Their lesson doesn't have to diminish your trust or faith, but it can give you clues to how you think and feel about something. It can also prompt you to trust yourself and have more faith in your own abilities. Elizabeth Perry offers some strategies to let go and move on. 15 tips to forget the past. Tripping in front of a crowd, a bad breakup, a flubbed line during a presentation. We've all had bad memories and embarrassing moments we'd prefer to forget. Some are quickly left behind. Other events can stick with you, like heartbreak. Letting go of the past isn't easy. We might struggle with traumatic memories in particular. Traumatic memories are intense and seem like they take control of our whole bodies. They can be visual flashbacks that cause us to feel physically ill. These can cause us to experience headaches, profuse sweating, stomach aches, and feel weak. We may also feel the impact of extreme stress after we think we've moved past the flashback. So while it's understandable to put your energy toward living a happier life, that's often easier said than done. But there are benefits when you learn to forget traumatic moments from the past or remember them with less intense emotions. That's true for unpleasant memories of the past that aren't traumatic, like embarrassing moments from middle school that still occasionally flash in your brain. In doing so, you'll adopt a growth mindset, enabling you to think about the future, grow, and experience all life has to offer. The American Psychological Association defines trauma as an emotional and potentially physical response to any terrible event, like an assault or a natural disaster. Less serious events, like tripping in front of a crowd or receiving a bad grade, still result in negative feelings and discomfort when we reflect on those moments. But a trauma response can make it seem like you're living in the past and experiencing the event just as intensely. If you experience long-term effects from a traumatic event that disrupt your quality of life, you may be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. This can cause physical symptoms like migraines and nausea, difficulty sustaining relationships, and more. There are three types of responses to trauma, emotional response, cognitive response, and physical response. Research into the links between memory and emotion has found that reframing negative memories to focus on positive aspects creates more healthy brain functioning. There's something to be said about the power of positive thinking. After a difficult experience, you'll likely go through a period of reflection You might play the event over in your head or mourn any changes the situation caused. This is a perfectly normal and healthy response. Reflecting lets us accept the experience into our lives and make any necessary changes. If you're feeling safe and ready and willing, here are a few ways to turn your mind toward the experience. You could try journaling. 
There has to be something to this and meditation because it's a solution for maintaining a high sense of well-being. Don't overthink it, just write what you're thinking. Practicing mindfulness. Going for a long walk. Chatting about it with a friend or family member. As you reflect, ask yourself the following questions. Did I develop a new skill or gain resiliency due to this event? What would help me move past what happened? Is there a friend or family member I trust to talk to about this? Remember, there's a time limit to reflecting on the past. Once you feel you've come to terms with what's happened and can draw some positives from the experience, move forward. Take it a positive outlook and those lessons with you. Keep your distance from people or locations that might trigger adverse reactions. Incorporate self-care into your daily routine. Spend time with positive people with whom you have healthy relationships. Swap out negative thoughts for positive self-talk. Let yourself feel your emotions rather than deny them. All emotions are valid. It's our responses to them that we need to be attentive to. Take a social media hiatus to live in the present moment. Understand that some people may never apologize to you. Forgive yourself for any past mistakes you've made. When you carry resentment, you're only hurting yourself, not the person you resent. Write down your goals and make a plan for your progress. Practice mindfulness to keep recentered and focused. Acknowledge how far you've come. Be grateful to those who have helped you and most importantly, to yourself. So I challenge you, seek out joyful memories to overshadow the tough ones. Be willing to part ways with rumination as you invite in more gratitude and gentle life lessons. I know you can do it. Back to you, Robert, and OK Boomer. Okay, Kendall, thank you very much. And I need that advice because I'm a curmudgeon. And what I'm going to do is play this piece again so it will sink in and I'll start taking your advice. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. It's time now to get up. And I'm just going to stand by the door and do some deep knee bends because we did this yesterday. This was a a rather awkward moment outside in the parking lot. But uh, what I did is I got up and I started walking into the hallway of the radio station and uh, I walked to one of the doors that led out to the radio station parking lot and opened the door. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're in the parking lot waiting for the... Okay, here it comes. He's here. Okay, he stopped. He's getting out of his van. And here he is. Hello, kitties. Oh, man, sorry about, sorry about all that smoke and rubber, man. You know, you know stuff happens, you know. <laughs> oh, man, but anyway, if you see any other cars or stuff coming, come, uh, coming this way, uh, let me know because I think they're coming to take me away. Oh, they are. <laughs> oh, my God. They're, they're, they're coming to take me away. They're, they're here. They're here. Ah, help me. Oh, Remember when you ran away and I got on my knees and begged you not to leave because I go berserk? Well, 
You left me anyhow And then the days got worse and worse And now you see I've gone completely out of my mind And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha you thought it was a joke, and so you laughed. You laughed when I had said that losing you would make me flip my lid. Right? You know you laughed. I heard you laugh. You laughed, you laughed, and laughed, and then you left. But now you know I'm utterly mad. And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha. They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha. To the happy home with trees and flowers and chirping birds and basket weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their thumbs and toes and they're coming to take me away, <laughs> I cooked your food, I cleaned your house, and this is how you pay me back for all my kind, unselfish, loving deeds. Ha! <laughs> Well, you just wait, they'll find you yet And when they do, they'll put you in the ASPCA, you mangy mutt And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha To the happy home with trees and flowers and chirping birds and Weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their thumbs and toes And they're coming to take me away <laughs> To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time Well, that was most embarrassing And um, that was done by the... Um Mad Hippie here, and uh, the Mad Hippie will be coming periodically on the program to place records that you haven't heard for a long time, like that one. And the Mad Hippie should be here next week uh, when when he talks to his parole officer. Anyway, Jerry Samuels, a longtime Philadelphia resident and a former record producer, songwriter, and talent agent, who is most famous for his 1966 song, They're Coming to Take Me Away, Ha Ha. That was the guy who put the thing together. Now let's talk about trivia and um, brain fog. Uh, I've had some brain fog because of uh, long COVID. It, it happens to me periodically, sometimes when I'm on the air. But there is something that can help you with brain fog, uh, help keep your brain focused, and that's trivia. And Bob Smith and his wife, Marsha, will be in in a few minutes for trivia for a while, and uh, it's called The Off-Ramp. Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. 
But that's not all. TechTime also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, TechTime is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. Techtime.it. And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S-G-U-I-G-N-A. Laura Squigna, and you can find her on the TechTime website under Translators. This is Robert Rickman, right, kid? Okay, boomer. Okay, kid. He, uh, I think he needs a, I think he needs new tonsils. I don't know. So we've had a cup of coffee, and now we go to Bob Smith and his wife Marcia. What country has more camels than any other in the world? And are male and female brains the same? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this half hour of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp. It's a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity. We got some interesting questions here today. Well, Marcia, what country has more camels than any other in the world? Well, I'll, I'll give you choices. Oh, good. Egypt, yeah. Mongolia, yeah. Australia, yeah. or Saudi Arabia. Okay, I will say, well, it seems like Saudi Arabia would, but that's probably wrong because it's obvious, right? You're overthinking it, Marsha. Saudi Arabia, Bob. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, it's Australia. What? Now, if you're thinking, geez, I didn't know camels were indigenous to Australia. No. You're right. They're not. Yet today, Australia has the largest population of camels in the world. And not only the largest population of camels, the largest population of wild camels, too. When did they first get them? Well, in the mid-1800s. It's really recent. And they were originally intended to be used as transportation because there's big, big swaths of open desert in Australia. Yeah. However, since then, technological advances have changed that plan, and many of the camels either escaped or were just released into the wild. So, really? feral camels, F-E-R-A-L, roamed the undeveloped, uninhabited Australian desert for more than a century, and they had calves of their own. I had no idea. I didn't either. Would they come by boat? They brought them over by ship, yeah. How else would they, I guess? By 2013, approximately 300,000 camels lived on the Australian continent, and 10 years later, that number is estimated to be closer to a million. A wow. million camels in Australia. I, I never, ever would have thought of that. They, they multiply like rabbits, apparently. Uh, who knew? <laughs> so Australia, the land down under, not the African desert, has more camels than any country in the world. Okay. Okay, Bob, your brain, my brain, are they the same? Well, they're different because they're in different people. <laughs> so the answer is different. <laughs> Next question. Okay, well, <laughs> well thought out, Bob. Well, women usually have smaller brains. Oh, I didn't know that. Even after adjusting for our size difference. 
But human brain size does not correlate to intelligence, because guess who had a small brain? Albert Einstein, that's who. (laughs) Okay, okay, take it easy. (laughs) I'm sorry. So Uh, just because men have bigger brains doesn't mean they're better thinkers. Absolutely not. The volume of certain (laughs) regions in the brain also differs. Hmm. For example, women have more volume in the prefrontal cortex, and men have more volume in the occipital region. Oh, my goodness, where's that? I was hoping you knew. But it's not in the prefrontal. (laughs) Yes, we win with the prefrontal (laughs) cortex. All right. The differences between male and female brains may help explain why men and women are not equally vulnerable to some mental illnesses. Oh, I didn't know that. Women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Okay. Pretty much because they're married to men. But Wait a minute. Hello. (laughs) Was that a fact or editorial? That was an editorial. Okay. And men suffer from more substance abuse than women do. Because of the women they're married to. Okay, (laughs) I get it now. I asked for that one. Move on, Bob, move on. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. So the answer is male and female brains are different. Different different in size. Size and Women have smaller but superior brains. Wait Wait. a minute now. I didn't (laughs) hear that. All right. Have smaller brains, but not necessarily less intelligent at all. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. (laughs) Hey, we just recently had St. Patrick's Day. And I have a question. Where was the first St. Patrick's Day parade? The first? Yeah. Was it way back in Ireland? I have. No, I have a guess. Okay. I'll say. uh, I'll tell you. It was 400 years ago. 400? 400. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Boston or New York City. Oh. 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 I guess they weren't parading 400 years ago. No, they were parading 400 years ago in America, though. Where? St. Augustine. Oh, really? Yeah, believe it or not, it was in America, not Ireland. And believe it or not, it was more than 400 years ago, the feast day of St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland. That's been observed by the Irish for over a thousand years. But the first official St. Patrick's Day parade took place in 1601 in what is now St. Augustine, Florida. Jeez. In I can't America, see, I 1601. I can see the floats going down there and the marching no, bands. I guess know, it's just, a different kind of parade, but they had so. it there. And Boston and New York did follow up with their own marches, but not until the 18th century. So okay. it all started in St. Augustine in 1601, the first St. Patrick's Day parade. I wonder if there were many Irish living there. I don't know. I, I, thought, the, I thought there was Spanish primarily so did down I, there. but what do we no. Okay. Maybe it was a. Maybe they were making fun of the Irish. Oh. Spanish were parading Irish people there. That, or something. that was a. That was an interesting place that we visited once, Saint Augustine. Yes, it was. Yes. Okay, Bob. Where is a Starbucks that is open twenty four seven and has only one customer? What? Well, one customer with lots of employees. One customer with lots of employees. Is uh-huh. it in the White House? No. One customer with lots of employee. Oh, I'll bet that is the Starbucks down in Antarctica. Oh. Remember we talked about the ATM down there? Yeah. No. Okay, where is this? It is the CIA headquarters in Langley. Oh. And I'm telling you, there are 30,000 Starbucks worldwide, but there's only one Starbucks that specifically caters to members of the Central Intelligence Agency. Hmm. It's located inside CIA headquarters in Langley, and this Starbucks is only available to those with the highest levels of security clearance. Really? While the store is decorated to look like a normal Starbucks (laughs) in order to help humanize the otherwise tense job, receipts merely depict store number one. 
as opposed to any specific location. You know, they usually give their name and oh, that's location. Weird. Uh-huh, Furthermore, I- baristas who undergo extensive background checks are forbidden from writing names on any of the cup, not even aliases. Oh, really? So yes. they can't say Igor or <laughs> Ivan, you know, yeah. drink for Ivan. Yeah. Yeah. Some <laughs> Russian spy names or something. That's done to preserve the confidential identities. And and don't try using your Starbucks rewards car there either because those perks are banned from there because they could fall into the wrong hands. That's right. Data would go into the wrong. Yeah. Well, if you, if you can't get in there anyway, how are you going to use your card there? Yeah, I don't know. Despite Jeez. all these irregularities compared to the normal experience, the store remains immensely popular uh, among employees and boasts long lines at all hours of the day. Isn't <laughs> that, how, that? I don't know how many employees are there. I wonder if they have any uh, fancy different drink names there or something. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Espionage I'll names have one, on their I've drinks. I've been the terrible yeah. on, uh, uh, jumbo. Missions, you know, mission drinks or something. Mm-hmm. All right, Marsha, what world-famous landmark has a light show that's protected by copyright? Now, I'll give you some choices Yes, here. thank you. Okay, these are major landmarks. The Sphinx, the Eiffel Tower, Disney World, the Roman Colosseum, or Big Ben. Which world-famous landmark has a light show protected by copyright? Well, I'll say Eiffel Tower. That's right. That's what it is. Yeah, they have that evening light show. Now, that was actually created by an artist, Pierre Bideau, in 1985, and it's covered by copyright law. Under that law, sale and distribution rights for photos or videos of the show belong to the original creator of the art, and they'll only expire 70 years after he dies. But <laughs> since the building's architect, Gustav Eiffel, passed away in 1923, uh-huh. pictures of the tower itself, that's okay. It's under public domain. Perfectly fine to snap a picture during the daytime. However, this other fellow who did the light show is still alive. So technically, any photo or of the tower at night or video can only be published, shared, or sold if you have his permission. Uh. But <laughs> fortunately yes, for dear. millions of us who've been there, the law has never been enforced in court. <laughs> but it's protected by a copyright. I don't know what's that worth if you can't enforce it. Yeah, that is. Not worth the paper it's printed on, apparently. Well, Bob, you'll be happy to know the 2023 survey of the happiest and unhappiest countries is out. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, joy, oh, joy. <laughs> we talk about this every so often. Yes, who there are, are the there happiest are, countries? There yeah. are 150 countries uh, in this survey. And once again, for six straight years... Let me see if I got it. Is it uh, Denmark or... That's number two. Okay, it's it's right up there, though. It's, it's yeah. uh, Denmark, Norway. Uh, what is the one that wants to get NATO now? Um, not Sweden, but the other one. Okay, which one is Finland. it? Finland. Finland, yes. Six straight years, it tops the list. That's the They're number one. They're doing something right there. Yeah. They're the happiest country in the world. Yeah, that's followed by Denmark. But guess who comes in number three? Who? That's the one that surprised me. Take a guess. It's not It's not a Scandinavian country. Not the United States? No, no. Oh, okay. What is it? It's Israel. Really? That surprises me because there's, you know, they're always at kind of war. That's so, right. Somebody's at their throat yeah, usually. Yeah, they worry about somebody bombing them or taking them out at any given time, but they're pretty happy over there. Interesting. So, I thought so. But America? No, we're number 15. And France, 20. Oh, okay. So who's at the bottom of the list? <laughs> North Korea, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and in the basement is 
Afghanistan. Jeez. Yeah, Taliban is not bringing the joy there, that's for sure. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I've got some more animal facts. We talked about camels. I've got some other ones here, okay? Okay. What's the major difference between monkeys from the old world and monkeys from the new world? Now, by that, I mean the old world is like Africa uh-huh. and Asia. Monkeys in the new world in the Americas. There are well, monkeys the- down in Brazil and places like that, okay? Okay. South America, Central right. America? I don't know. There are... What's the difference between monkeys from the old world and the new world? Uh, no, no, they're more adventurous. They're more patriotic. They, well, I, I don't know. This is kind of a weird thing, okay? Yeah. Only new world monkeys from Central and South America can hang by their tails. Really? That's according to the Isaac Asimov Book of Facts. Is that like evolutionary? Or? I don't know. It says no old world monkeys from Africa or Asia can hang by their tails. Ironically, the old world monkeys have longer tails. Even so, old world monkeys share a distinct advantage over those from the Americas. They have sitting pads of tough skin, while American monkeys don't. Huh. So well. they don't have a nice hiney there that helps them out. <laughs> nice hiney, a nice, right. nice thick hiney. Okay, Bob. I'm not talking about beer. <laughs> you know, you know what the NASA logo looks like, don't you? Yes. It's what? It's like a blue ball with a red streak, and then it's got like a white orbit thing in it. Yeah. So this is your kind of question. What do employees call the NASA logo? Oh dear. <laughs> You'll like this. Okay. Um, what would they call that? I don't know. What is it? What do they call it? The meatball. Oh, the meatball. <laughs> yeah, we called the meatball Alan Bradley. Is we that called it, it the was meatball. it Alan Bradley or Rockwell? Alan Bradley because it was an octagon, the yeah. meatball. Yeah. Oh, so they call it that in uh, in at NASA. Uh, at NASA too, the meatball. Yeah. This is inside corporate stuff. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, speaking of NASA, Marsha, you had that uh, story a couple of weeks ago about Neil Armstrong leaving the boots on the moon or the galoshes. Remember I did, that? Yeah. I did a little research after that and found a really interesting article, and it's on the Royal Museum's Greenwich website. Now, this is in England, but most of the information is about American astronauts. So I've got a few other things that the astronauts left behind on the moon. Uh, on the moon, is it pretty getting cluttered up there or It's what? very cluttered. You know, we talked about Neil and Buzz. They were yeah. the first two, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They uh, disposed of anything they didn't need from the lunar module. That included the tube the U.S. flag had been rolled up in, the TV camera they used to send footage back to Earth, and the tools they used to gather the moon rock and dust. So they created a toss zone, they called it, which lies to the west of the Apollo 11 landing site. A litter pile. That's what it was. But you ask about the total amount of stuff on the moon from the Apollo missions. Now, this includes, it sounds huge, but it includes the lunar landers, the, um, remember the modules they took, the ones that, the rovers that went out like Jeeps all over the moon? Yeah, yeah. So all that metal and all the other stuff, 400,000 pounds wow, of stuff. That's that's unfortunate. Including 96 bags of human waste. 96 <laughs> bags? Isn't that awful? Buzz was busy. They were all busy, all the astronauts. <laughs> In fact, the scientists would like to bring those back to see how they changed. Oh, yeah. You know, over the years yeah. being exposed to lunar radiation well, and everything. Good. I'd hit that assignment. Okay, time to go to break. <laughs> but, but wait a minute. There's a couple more things that I'll, we'll get out of that. I'm so glad I, you went and looked up. I enticed you to look into this, Laura. 
Uh, astronaut Charles Duke, Apollo 16, he left a frame family photo on the moon surface, took a picture of it before they left, uh-huh. and it's him and his kids and his wife. He was the youngest person to walk on the moon. It says, this is the family of astronaut Charles Duke from the planet Earth who landed on the moon on April 20th, 1972. That's how old was he? He was 36, the youngest person to walk on the moon. Huh. Okay, Marcia, what's your next question? <laughs> How did the rabbit and eggs become symbols of Easter? Oh, that's interesting. Why did the rabbit and eggs? Well, fertility for both, I think, because the eggs meaning life, you know, but rabbits meaning the fertility of at rabbits. They're uh-huh. obviously notorious for reproducing. <laughs> so I would think that's the reason. Ah, no, not according to the big book of answers. Oh, <laughs> let's open that one. <laughs> the word Easter goes to the ancient Norse word ostra, which is what the Vikings called the festival of spring. The legend of a rabbit bringing Easter eggs is from German folklore. Oh, okay. Which tells of a poor woman who, during a famine, dyed some eggs and hid them in her chicken's nest to surprise the kids. (laughs) Just as the children discovered the nest, a big rabbit leaped away. And the story spread that it had brought the eggs. Oh, no kidding. So that's where it came from. At least according to this source, that's how it was a folktale. And then we went to Peter Rabbit and all those other stories came out of that. And the whole world evolved from that story. The whole new world. <laughs> okay, speaking of that, let's go back to the moon with more questions and answers. Okay, Marcia, we talked about, you know, remember the first flags they put up on the moon? They How were they different from regular flags? Was the material different? Material was different because... Because they would rip to shreds up there right away, no? No, because there's no wind on the moon. There's no wind. They wouldn't rip to shreds. So they would just hang... Hang down. They wanted something, oh, to be stiff and stick out. So they put wires and material to make it stiff out. Yeah, so that's... that's, That makes sense. Those flags did not actually fly. It's interesting that Eugene Cernan, the Apollo 17 flag planted by him, had already been to the moon. It was carried to the lunar surface and back on Apollo 11. They carried an Apollo 17 flag looking ahead to the last flight. Uh huh. And then they brought it back, and then it hung on the wall of mission control. And then uh, they took that flag again and took it back to the moon one more time. That's interesting, I wow. thought. Ashes have also been taken to the moon. Did you know that? I did not. Okay. They took the ashes of a gentleman named Gene Shoemaker. He was a U.S. geologist who studied terrestrial craters and discovered many comets and planets. And when he died, his ashes were transported to the moon in a capsule on board the Lunar Prospector Space Probe. He's the only person to have his ashes flown to the moon. There have been other ashes that have been sent in outer space. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. You got to pay for that? Uh, there is a service, yes. I think you have to pay for that a now. service charge? A little service Nothing. charge. Okay, that $25,000. <laughs> Nothing is free. A burial is cheaper on Earth than it is in <laughs> outer space. <laughs> I like. I can hear you doing the commercial. Okay, Bob. <laughs> this is up your, uh, up your alley. Oh, my alley. Okay. <laughs> what American city was named after Marie Antoinette? Marietta, Ohio. Oh, I was wondering if you would do that. That's it. I knew that. We've been there. I just didn't know if you remember that little factoid from the museum. And, of course, this was before the French Revolution, and Marie Antoinette was the wife of 
the leader of France who was giving millions of dollars to the Americans to help with their revolution against Great Britain. So I knew you'd have more information on this than I That's right. That's so they right. named the town Marietta. Yeah. It's in southeastern Ohio, and it's the county seat of Washington County and has a population of 13,385. It's the first colony outside the 13 in the United States, the Is first right? official. Yeah. Okay. And some of my ancestors helped found that. Well, as I recall, I did hear that 10, 20, 30 times. Yes. Okay, more <laughs> stories on monkeys. Oh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, I got another animal fact here, okay? Okay. How much oil can be extracted from the blubber of a male elephant seal? Oh, gosh, I was wondering about that now, this here's, morning. Now, here's a little hint. Its skin is only seven inches thick, so uh-huh. how much? We're talking pounds? We're talking gallons. Gallons. A male elephant seal. That's a seal, not a, not a whale. Yeah. How much oil can be extracted from the blubber of a male elephant seal? Okay. I'll say 25 gallons. It's amazing, but it's 210 no. gallons of oil. No. Yeah. Its skin is only seven inches thick, but it can give as much as 210 gallons of oil, and that's considered superior to oil from the sperm whale. Wow. The elephant seal oil is often used for lubricating machinery. Really? Hope you've enjoyed our show today. We would like to invite you to submit any questions you might have to us by going to our website, theofframp.show, and scrolling down to Contact Us. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. And I'd like to thank Bob and Marsha Smith, Kendall Boyson, the Mad Hippie, and, and hope he's come down, uh, Bob Bear, Dick Taylor, and Jill Graskwitz. OK Boomer comes from the studios of WDBX Radio in Carbondale, Illinois, and is also rebroadcast on WRFN Radio in Nashville. Plus, you can find OK Boomer with Robert where you get your podcasts And oh yes, uh, we're on Facebook too. This is Robert Rickman saying, we all have choices.